0: What is going to happen when this pandemic shows up at the front door in a place like Bangladesh? It is absolutely a case of huge worries. Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast. I am Alberto Ligi, your host from London. And as a regular listener, snow, the purpose of the podcast is to encourage you to be more philanthropic, to act more sustainably and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Please subscribe to the show. It makes a huge difference. And also please share with others widely. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome on board Girish Menon, who is the CEO of ActionAid UK. So today we're going to be talking about ActionAid and how it is being impacted by the coronavirus in terms of the work it does in low-income countries. Uh, some of the strategic challenges, funding challenges, and much more. Girish, I wish we were talking under different circumstances, but I extend a heartfelt welcome to you back on the show. Thank
1: you, Alberto. It's good
0: to talk to you, and particularly in these really challenging and unprecedented times. Indeed. I can only imagine what it must be like to be running an organization like ActionAid and trying to figure out What to do next? First of all, why don't we start by just giving our listeners a little bit of an overview Very briefly about action aid and the work it does on a global level Sure
1: Action aid is a global federation. We are a human rights organization Working in over 40 countries with a focus on poverty eradication gender inequality and social injustice, so that's what we work on in the UK Uh, We are an organization that focuses on the rights of women and girls living in poverty in the global south We have partnerships with over 30 countries in the global south working jointly on Implementing programs a number of policy and research work that will enable women to transform their lives and realize their rights as well
0: Thanks for that. So tell us what are we? dealing with today Uh, three weeks ago four weeks ago the reality that we're facing today, possibly was a little bit difficult to imagine. Today, it's it's very clear front and center on everybody's radar. Tell me a little bit about your day-to-day thinking right now. Well, that's a very interesting question because no
1: day has been the same over the past two or three weeks. Everything has had to be shifted, to be moved, to be reprioritized. Uh, the world is certainly in the grip of a global pandemic And the difference now than before is that it's actually impacting on the developed countries more. It's had a huge impact in Europe and in the US, which has been very different from some of the crises we saw in the past, where it used to be restricted to a country or a set of countries, whether we talk of the earthquake in Nepal or the Ebola crisis in West Africa. So this is a pandemic like never before, and everybody, be it the governments, the business sector, or the not-for-profit sector, is finding it hugely challenging. We have no idea how it's going to unfold. We have no idea when it's going to end. We have no idea of how the new normal will be defined. And absolutely, we have no idea on the far-reaching implications of this crisis. We certainly have uh, a situation in Europe, in the in the developed world, in spite of the fact that in some of these countries, we really have very good, well-developed, very accessible and affordable health systems. And yet we have a large number of countries where health health systems are fundamentally weak. Many people work in the informal, unorganized sector with absolutely no social security and live in far-flung villages. So that's a challenge we are trying to consider at, at a global scale, Within the remit of action aid as an organization
0: and which are some of the low-income countries in which you operate uh, Just to give our listeners some idea of where you're active
1: Right. So uh, if I start from Asia, we work in South Asia, which is India Pakistan uh, Pakistan we recently closed the programs. Unfortunately, we don't have a program there right now, but Nepal Bangladesh uh, Myanmar and it extends to other uh, Southeastern countries right up to Vietnam and Indonesia uh, we work in a number of uh, sub-Saharan African countries, uh, from Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, Rwanda in the east, to Senegal, Nigeria, Ghana in the west, to Malawi, Mozambique, Zambia in the south. Uh, and then we work in a number of uh, Central American, Latin American countries as well. So it spreads right. across continents.
0: Right. Now, there's a uh, report that's just come out from Imperial College highlighting the, the death toll and impact that this uh, pandemic could very well have on the developing world so low-income countries and some of the dynamics they highlight there and i mention these for context are that yes indeed there is a younger population overall. the demographics are younger than they are in in, in wealthier countries in the west however they do have individuals a population that a lot of times is, is uh, experiencing uh, health-related problems that the health system is not as adequate as it is here, capacity is lower. We have larger family households living all together under one roof, which means those who are elderly, over 65, are living with younger uh, members of the family and therefore more difficult to isolate, that those who are elderly in those communities also interact with a, a broader range of age brackets in society all sorts of issues around water, all sorts of issues around sanitation and lack thereof, and also very little by way of being able to deploy a hefty economic stimulus package and also lower ability to have individuals in society self-isolate and so forth. So a variety of issues that come to the fore when we think about the developing world, and it's just not pleasant reading and... Personally, this is something that's been percolating in my head for the last few weeks What is going to happen when this pandemic shows up at the front door in a place like Bangladesh? It is absolutely a case of huge worry So if for example,
1: we look at the Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh where we have uh, the Rohingya refugees who are fleeing from Myanmar uh, being relocated We are talking of a situation of a very densely populated camp of 800,000 people. We're talking of very populous countries like India or or in in case of urban Kenya or urban Nigeria. Uh, it's, It's very hard to think of how some of those elements of social distancing can be maintained. It's hard to think of how the informal people working in the informal economy would sustain over this period of time. Mind you, they're already leading a subsistence life with very little social security and safety nets. And now many of these countries have gone into lockdown. Uh, The building sites are closed. Agriculture work has come to a grinding halt. All the other informal sector, which is actually what employs them, is closing one after the other. In many countries, the police have also been enforcing this lockdown very, very strictly. So there's a huge economic impact. There's a huge social impact. But one thing that is not often talked about is how such crises have a much deeper, disproportionate impact on women and girls. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is yet another issue of gender discrimination that comes to the fore at the time of crisis. So the first thing is about unpaid care. We know that women spend three times more the time than men spend on unpaid care. And now, with caring responsibilities for people who might be sick in the family or the, or the elderly, it's going to add to the caring burdens. It's going to make it much more difficult to get water, for instance, as you pointed out, because the, the, the key message to stop the spread is about regular hand washing. Mm. And when you have a situation where 780 million people don't have access to water, you are putting the burden more and more on, on the women and girls to get that water. Two thirds of the informal sector workers happen to be women. So again, from an economic perspective, there's going to be a huge burden on them, not to mention the potential of increased domestic violence that we have seen often in ter- in times of crisis and then, when you have a situation where women are disproportionately burdened with all these additional responsibilities that this crisis is going to put on them, one can imagine how, how difficult it would be for them to even access some of the information that is coming out in terms of what you can do
0: to keep yourselves safe in times of a COVID 19 attack. Uh, too much to digest. Tell me what are you doing in terms of your actual programs right now? What is it that you're doing in anticipation of of uh, of any regulations or any uh, uh, social distancing uh, directives that come in, uh, and just in general to keep your your staff safe and those who are you, who you're helping safe? What in practice, what is it looking like right now? What are you doing to to prepare for this um, this hurricane, as it were? Mm across the world now everybody's working from home
1: because uh all, all the uh, all the countries uh, are seen as high-risk countries some countries are obviously more at risk than than the others so pretty much every uh, all, all staff members are working from home that's where technology has come in handy because uh we have uh, we had put in a lot of resources in making ourselves more digital it was part of our action Aid uk strategy it was part of the action global strategy mm-hmm. So, that has helped us to actually have some of those operations kicking the background with some of the business transformation that we did. So, uh, there are, and, and different countries, depending upon where they are on the digital and technological journey, have put in additional stopgap measures in place so that people can access the internet, even if they, they live in an area which has poor connectivity. Mm-hmm. All non essential international travel has been stopped. The essential international travel will only be permitted in. In highly, highly exceptional cases if somebody needs to travel to address uh, a growing humanitarian crisis, but we have not yet come to that point. At this point in time, pretty much all travel has been suspended. Our, our absolute top concern has been to ensure that staff are safe, uh, staff are connected, and staff are able to work remotely. Having gone through that over the last week to 10 days, it's now looking at how we can connect with the communities. Now, globally, ActionAid has been very fortunate because across all the programs, we have strongly believed in the principle of localization, where we work with and through local organizations and local communities. They are the ones who lead any response at any point in time. And in many, many countries, these responses are led by women leaders and women's rights organizations. So I think we are uniquely positioned to reach out to communities uh, in a manner that suits the context and the complexities in in how each of the communities are are, uh, are structured. So rather than somebody sitting far away in the head office in 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 the national capital talking about what should happen, these are actually led by local level community activists, a very large number of them who are women, the focus has been on spreading messages on how to keep people safe. But equally, at the national level, every team is working as part of a national collective to see how they can work with the government to highlight the issues and sufferings of people who are really caught out in this kind of a pandemic, talking about the necessary social security plans that need to be in place, health systems and access to health materials and information that needs to be in place, and how people who are most vulnerable can be supported. Mm. Within the UK, we are in regular contact with a number of peer organizations on a daily basis, and there are all kinds of thematic groups because in the case of ActionAid, uh, UK is the largest fundraising market. One-third of the funds that we raise globally comes from our supporters in the UK. So any shift or any drop in income would have an, uh, a huge negative impact on our ability to deliver programs to the communities that need them the most so we're yes. really looking hard at how could can we continue to engage with our supporters how can we provide the right level of information and and how as a sector we can think of how best to support programs around the world uh, to do what they need to do at this time of crisis where all the plans all the carefully Calibrated plans have to be put on one side to say, we need to address this pandemic here and now, but we also need to think about a post-recovery
0: period, which is equally important to get the communities back on their feet. Indeed, indeed. And tell me a little bit about the, the funding and fundraising side of things. I know that that's something that's front and center on the minds of pretty much every charity CEO that I know, every... NGO that I know, Uh, you at uh, ActionAid, I know you were either due to have or have launched a uh, the Southern Africa food crisis appeal, uh, which is something that you had on, on, you know, on your to do list from before this pandemic outbreak. Tell me a little bit about the funding landscape, the challenges, the new realities that you and your and your fundraising uh, colleagues are are grappling with right now. Indeed.
1: The Southern Africa
0: Food Crisis Appeal had been launched
1: a couple of months ago, uh, and this is uh, being conscious of the fact that the whole Southern African region, with a total population of 45 million people, are facing one of the worst food crises. And with any of these crises, it does affect the poorest and the most vulnerable the most. Uh, Of course, we can't reach out everywhere. So again, through our regular programs, particularly in Malawi, Mozambique, uh, Zimbabwe and Zambia, we've been working with local organizations and local communities to reach out to communities that are facing the brunt of the food crisis and bring in some quick packages of support uh this uh, the coronavirus pandemic has come on top of that, so obviously it's very hard to get traction on those messages though I'm incredibly indebted to a number of supporters who have stepped up and helped us raise significant amounts of money with with this appeal uh, so we have raised about half the money we expect to raise. We hope that we will be able to raise the remainder half as well so that we can reach out to the people who are suffering the food crisis because if and when the pandemic actually reaches those communities, it's going to have a far greater impact on them because these are communities who are already at the brink of survival and whose uh, health and immunity and nutrition status is highly, highly compromised. So it's a a double whammy for them uh, in addition to all the other vulnerabilities that they have. In terms of funding, uh, of course, at a time when there's a crisis in this country that we haven't seen in probably centuries, it's very normal for everybody to feel very anxious and mm. vulnerable about their own communities, their own neighborhoods and their own country. To what extent will it have an implication on fundraising? Uh, we really don't know, to be honest. Uh, the We will start getting the initial results in a month or two when, uh, when we start understanding some of those factors much more. We are quite fortunate that we have a steady stream of supporters, uh, which is why, at least for now, our income is holding up. I can't say that would be the same situation in three months' time if this pandemic takes a much uh, deeper form in this country. It plays on the economy, I mean, we're already seeing so many jobs are being lost, so many people have been made redundant, and even though the government has announced massive packages, it would take time for those packages to be delivered, but it will still have a deep and lasting impact on the economy. So obviously, as a, a, as a sector of not-for-profits, we've had lots of discussions trying to understand how this would impact on us. What we do know that is that, that it will have a significant impact on our fundraising, also because everybody is working remotely. Fundraising thrives on regular engagement, and that engagement will be quite curtailed now, even though digitally and technologically, we are fairly prepared to work in the virtual world. uh, There's a lot of face-to-face engagement that takes place to connect with supporters, to convey the change or the difference that their contributions have made to the community. Um, And we haven't handled a crisis of this kind in the past, so we really don't know what the impact would be, but we do think that the impact could be significant.
0: I guess the only consolation there is that you're not the only organization grappling with this, but every other NGO, every other charity is having to face the same issue and every single one of your donors and supporters is keenly aware of this new reality. That's right. That's absolutely right, which is why we are also in touch with several
1: of the donors to to A, explain the situation, because obviously we may not be able to honor all the commitments that we have made in terms of program delivery or the communications around the program just because of the, the practical difficulties and therefore requesting a lot more understanding, empathy and indeed flexibility, uh, for example, in terms of the deadlines for reporting. And it's it's quite encouraging that many supporters have written back to us and, and have said that we perfectly understand that. That's fine. You take care of yourselves, and we hope that the programs can continue. So so that's really encouraging.
0: I know there are quite a few different foundations coming front and center who have large endowments and uh, strong balance sheets that are stepping up and saying, we will back the third sector. We will help you overcome this uh, this really challenging period. Yes, indeed. And I think that's a great step forward because... Uh, this
1: uh, this time more than ever, the role of philanthropists and the foundations are so very crucial. They've always been huge supporters of the sector, uh, and it's it you know we really need them all all the more uh, at, at this time of crisis as we prepare uh, a, a kind of a situation report of what's happening and what needs to be done. Uh, so yes, uh, I've been conscious of that and it's it's good to hear that from you as well because you interact with so many philanthropists and foundations and yes, if I have a simple message to them it is that uh, yeah, please
0: step in or we need all that goodwill and support and uh, Yes, and indeed there are groups out there. There are groups out there coming up uh, of funders who have you know high uh, amount of uh, net assets and who are willing to help uh, struggling charities. And at least ActionAid has a strong brand and a strong track record. Unfortunately, many charities are, are younger, are less well known, are doing amazing work, but don't have that, um, that safety net that maybe you at ActionAid might have. And to those individuals listening, I think think creatively, but do, your, do a bit of homework if you do go online whether that's here in the UK or elsewhere um, you will find that there are foundations with considerable assets that are actively looking to back organizations that are that are struggling right now so that's a that's a point to keep in mind tell me girish in terms of the strategic thinking at action aid so this whole coronavirus uh, really came to the you know came to everybody's attention at the very tail end of 2019 i think many for, for many people it was early 2020 where they first even heard about coronavirus what give us a little bit of insight in terms of how those alarm bells went off within various action aid offices around the world and how things started how things started aligning and coordinating in order to get to where we are right now and be uh, ready for what's coming hmm it's it's hard to think of how quickly and how rapidly the situation
1: kind of evolved into into where we are currently uh, i suppose like all of us around the world we always thought that it was something restricted to china or east asia or southeast asia uh because that's what happened with sars or that's happened with what 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 with bird flu and some of the other more regional level pandemic uh, that we saw and of course when it hit china people also had a confidence that the Chinese machinery is strong enough to address that. But sadly, all those assumptions proved false because it, it took a completely different turn. I suppose uh, it, so. It, that, that was a time when actually started looking at it, but it, it, it didn't still quite strike as very significant. But the, the penny dropped when we saw the situation evolve in Italy, because we have a very strong presence in Italy. And the situation in Italy started deteriorating rapidly. And when that happened and when that started spreading to other countries in Western Europe uh, and into the UK, um, it was then just a matter of days before ActionAid really woke up to it and said, uh, this is something that's going to hit us very, very badly. So for the last month or so, we started initiating discussions within the Global Federation of course, it was far more intensified in the Western European countries. Uh, Italy was facing the brunt of it, and soon enough, it was followed by Spain and France where we have a presence. Uh, but then all the other countries started uh, really uh, coming together and talking of what what does that mean and what can we do to stay a little bit ahead of the curve, uh, being seriously concerned about the speed at which it hit Italy. Uh, for us, uh, in in the UK, uh, we started looking at it seriously from the last week of February. So I, I would say for for a month now, and our, our initial focus was uh, a to to ensure safety of staff, their welfare. Uh, B on on supporting the remote working very very quickly so that uh, we uh, we could uh, we could ensure that everybody could work from home. Uh, we tested our equipment we quickly ordered additional equipment that we needed and our teams did a fantastic job in just stepping up very very quickly setting up sickness lines, set, setting up a tracking system for staff we have a group of mental health first aiders now we immediately realized that this can have serious consequences on mental health of of our colleagues so they got they swung into action in terms of how they could support staff who are self isolating or who would feel very anxious. And, and we tested all the other systems, our systems for communicating with supporters. So we actually uh, sent out a message to all the 56,000 supporters a couple of weeks ago to tell them what's happening at our end and what we're doing. The response to that was hugely encouraging by with many people writing back and saying, yes, we understand. That's the right thing. Stay safe. So so that's what we've been doing. And then some of our more externally facing colleagues have been part of a number of uh, groups uh, to to share intelligence um, and share best practices. So, you know, this is the time when everybody, you see the best in people at the time of crisis. And this was time that everybody across the sector was opening up and saying, hey, these are two or three things that we are doing that might be helpful for you. So there was a lot of unsolicited support and advice so that we can work together as a sector. Now, as we speak, we are having discussions with the government, uh, with the Department for International Development, because as you would have heard, they together with the Foreign Commonwealth Office have significantly stepped stepped up their COVID-19 response. So we are engaging with them and we are putting in plans to engage with them, not just here in the UK, but also through the offices globally. We are also working as part of BOND, which is the umbrella body for international organizations, so that we can have some core messages uh, that we can work on, core priorities that we can work on. For Action Aid as with every other organization, is also saying, how do we also stay mission focused? Because this is a time when you could be pulled in several different directions. Our mission is on poverty eradication, gender justice, and social equality. And our focus is on the rights of women and girls who would be worst hit, particularly in times of these crises. So trying to understand how can we get those messages out to the community here, but also how can we support our programs
0: working across the world. And unfortunately, everything is intertwined. I mean, the pandemic doesn't stay in isolation. It'll impact your, your, your food crisis appeal and it impacts everything else. Things, you know. Indeed, indeed. Uh, and, and as I said before, uh,
1: you know, we are working in communities that pretty much are the margins of society. That's why we are there. Uh, So, on every angle there's a challenge, there's a challenge of information reaching out to them, there's a challenge of supplies reaching out to them, there's a challenge of government schemes that might be quickly put together in different countries reaching out to them. Uh, They have had a challenge of accessing uh, the the normal structures that you would in in the administrative machinery working through fairly poorly resourced health and education systems. So yes, um, uh, obviously at the ground level, again respecting the principles of localization, we will be led by uh, what local communities uh, would prioritize, but we will put in whatever we can in terms of the information and advice uh, and learning for best practices across the Federation. But our responses will be very much led by the local organizations and the local communities that we've been working with for several years now.
0: Mm. And what are some of these other, you mentioned you're in in daily contact with those who are leading other organizations here in the UK. Who are those organizations that you're dealing with on a daily basis and what are you learning from each other? What sort of information are you sharing and, uh, and how are you benefiting from that interaction?
1: So for the international organizations, we have an umbrella body called Bond is for everybody in international development, which is has a membership of about 450 uh, organizations. So there are regular updates that we get from Bond, there are regular calls that are there for people like myself um, who are leading organizations or for people who are leading specific functions. So that's one broad grouping that we have. And the other broad grouping that we have is the Disasters Emergency Committee or the mm-hmm. DEC. It's a collective of 14 organizations and actually it has been a member of that for several years now. We are looking at what's happening here in the UK, how things are are unfolding, but also thinking in terms of a potential global appeal. We might need to do at some point in time, as and when the pandemic hits the global south. Uh, We don't think the time is right now to do the appeal here uh, in the UK, because there's so much anxiety and concern about what's happening in the UK. But equally, we also realise that we have a role to see How can the UK community support countries that have less resources than we do uh, as an act of global solidarity? So those are two examples. But there are all kinds of other groupings. For example, one of my colleagues, uh, she's part of an international program director's forum that has been quickly put together to actually say, what is our programmatic response and how can we be more coherent? Because we will be meeting with DFID uh, colleagues and hopefully the minister in the next few days. Uh, which is being discussed, so it'd be good for us to support and work in partnership with Difit so that all the the interventions and all the programs can have a meaningful impact rather than acting and doing things in different directions.
0: Yes, yes. normally, as you know, we end every show with a key takeaway from from our guests for for our listeners. in this case let me let me narrow it a little bit instead of saying a key takeaway, I would say, what sort of word of wisdom would you have for? other CEOs in the NGO, charity space, foundation space, and other individuals working in that space. What would you say to them right now? What I would
1: say to my peers and colleagues right now is uh, stay mission focused and be true to your culture. It's really important that we constantly remind ourselves of who we are and why we exist, So let not anything come in the way of distracting us from that mission. And we also have an organization culture that we hold very dear. It's about our values, whether it's about respect, kindness, trust, mutual accountability, collaboration, however you define it, be true to your culture, because that's what will keep us steady in these very, very turbulent times. And lastly, Focus on what you can control and manage because the world around you is swirling, you know, very, very violently and we have no idea of, you know, whether it's spinning out of control or at what point in time it will come to the, the quote unquote normal days. So just focus on what you can control and what you can manage.
0: Perfect. Perfect. Girish, thank you very, very much for joining the Do One Better podcast today under these circumstances and for sharing your wisdom and shedding light on the issue as you see it, uh, CEO of ActionAid UK. To our listeners, thank you very much for listening. I hope you found this useful. Feel free to write in if you have any questions or comments. Please subscribe. It really makes a world of difference and please share widely with others. Girish, thank you once again. It's been an absolute pleasure having you and, um, and it's always great speaking with you. Thank you, Alberto. Thanks for the opportunity. Stay safe and keep well. You too.